there, I'm V.E. Schwab, author of the Shades of Magic trilogy, and this is the podcast version of the Shades of Magic read-along. This read-along started as a video series over on YouTube and has found a new home here in the podcast realm, allowing us to explore the worlds of a darker shade of magic, a gathering of shadows, and a conjuring of light, all from the comfort of your headphones. This is how it works. In each episode, I'll be talking about specific sections of the books. You can either read those sections before you listen or just use these episodes as a recap of the story as we get ready for the release of The Fragile Threads of Power in fall 2023. So whether you're a seasoned traveler of these four Londons or a newcomer ready to explore, I invite you to join me on this journey. So book one, A Darker Shade of Magic. Basically today, I'm going to be covering the first four parts. This is largely an introduction. Before I get started, just want to cover the fact that I write slow books. Apparently, I am infamous for this. Uh, Some people like it, some people don't. But what I mean when I say slow books is that the first hundred pages or so are really an introduction to the story, to the world, to the characters. Now, I believe in this because I want you to think about reading a story like this as playing a game. And in order to play a game, you have to understand the rules of the game, you have to set the board for the game, you have to get ready. So these opening parts that we're going to discuss today are really setting the board for the game that we're going to play so that we care as readers about the outcome. Now before we get started, a quick primer. I love portal fantasy novels, but one of the reasons that I've struggled with them in the past is I don't love maps. (laughs) I don't love the idea of having to like, like do homework or learn in any way before I start reading a story. I just want to read the story. And so One of the things I wanted to do when I started brainstorming the Shades of Magic series is instead of creating four different worlds, I wanted to create one world four ways. So you only had to hold the geography of one landscape in your mind. The details set over it would change, but the bones would stay the same. So instead of having four worlds that you kind of need to learn about, you really only need to learn about one, and that's London. Now there are four Londons in this book. There's Grey London, which is essentially our London, circa 1819. No magic and a lot of coal smoke. (laughs) There's Red London, which is the world where magic has thrived. There's White London, which is a world that has starved itself by trying to confine and contain magic. And there's Black London, which was originally so powerful that people let magic into their hearts and minds and souls and it essentially devoured everything. Now, there was a time several centuries ago in this series where those Londons were connected. London was kind of a doorway, a a, a place, because the the Thames River or the Isle, it's called in Red London, or the Silt in White London, these places were sources of magic that allowed these doorways to happen and anyone who had any magic could go through them. But Black London, as I said, the power became so strong that it essentially created a plague. It consumed itself. It, cons- it created a fire that could not be stopped. And the other three worlds threw up walls. They essentially sealed themselves off from each other. And now, at the start of this story, the only people who can move between these four iterations of London are called Antari magicians. Now, people have magic in all of the worlds except for Grey London, which is a place that magic forgot, but their magic tends to be elemental. They can do spells, but everything comes down to a foundational element, whether it's earth and stone or, or wind or fire or water or bone. Bone is forbidden, though. Um, but Antari magicians 
are unique because in addition to controlling every element, most people can only control one, a very lucky can control two, every now and then you get one person who can control three. And Tari magicians can control all of them, but in addition to that, their blood can do extraordinary feats. Their blood can turn things to stone, can seal places, can open them, can create doors between worlds. So at the point in the story that we're coming in, there are still four worlds. Black London cannot be accessed. White London has essentially starved itself. Red London has worshipped magic and in turn has thrived in abundance. And Grey London, our London, has simply forgotten magic. And the only figures who can move between those worlds now are these Antari magicians, of which there are only two, Kelmaresh and Holland Vosik. Without any further ado, we are going to start part one. Part one is the Traveler. Fun fact that the original name for A Darker Shade of Magic was Traveler, but we had just published Vicious, which nobody could figure out how to spell. And Traveler is a book that, or, and A Darker Shade of Magic is a book that was originally being published in the US, but it's set in London. In American English, Traveler spelled with one L. And in British English, Traveler spelled with two L. And after about three and a half months, nobody could agree on the spelling of Traveler. And I was told I had to pick a different title for the book. Now, chapter one of part one. Kel wore a very peculiar coat. It had neither one side, which would be conventional, nor two, which would be unexpected, but several, which was, of course, impossible. The first thing he did whenever he stepped out of one London and into another was take off the coat and turn it inside out once or twice or even three times until he found the side he needed. Not all of them were fashionable, but they each served a purpose. There were ones that blended in and ones that stood out, and one that served no purpose, but of which he was just particularly fond. Kel wore a very peculiar coat. This has become one of my like best known opening lines. It's also one of the very first things that I wrote for the entire book. I remember being in Edinburgh with my friend Rachel Hawkins in 2013, sitting in a little Airbnb when I wrote these opening lines. Now, in chapter one, we meet Kel. Kel is our Antari magician. He's uh, one of our main characters, if you will. And we're meeting him in Grey London, one of the four Londons in this series. There's Grey London, Red London, White London, and Black London. We're going to talk more about that soon, but right now we are meeting Kel as he steps through a door in the world into Grey London. He's having a conversation with King George III, who is being kept at Windsor Castle. Uh, and what's really important about this scene is not only are we meeting Cal the magician, but we're understanding a little bit of who he is as a person. He's deeply earnest and he's deeply respectful towards people who have respect for him. This is going to be contrasted with chapter two, because after Cal leaves Windsor Castle and King George III, he goes to St. James and meets the Prince Regent, the person who will become George IV. And his relationship with these two kings, these two rulers, is extremely different. Because where King George III, going mad very infamously at the time, had a kind of whimsy about him, the Prince Regent is looking at Kel the magician and wondering how he can use him to his advantage. There's a level of greed there and gluttony that Kel does not want. So we see Kel visiting King George III and delivering a letter from his own ruling family in another world, and then going to the Prince Regent, repeating the same act, two very different scenes. So after that, in chapter three, we see Kel no longer as this magician messenger between worlds. He is alone now, and he's going to a place called the Stone's Throw. It's a tavern. 
And this tavern is one of the more important settings in the book. This is our first introduction to it, but it's also our first introduction to Kel when he's not deferring to somebody, when he's just being himself. We also meet Ned, Ned Tuttle, who is one of my favorite characters in the entire series. He was not supposed to be there. Ned was supposed to appear on one page and one page only in this chapter, but he just kind of grew on me and I just kept bringing him back over and over again. And now he's in the new series, he's still quite important. So one of the other things that we get in this chapter is that we learn a little bit more about the rules of magic, not just as they apply to Kel, but kind of as they apply to the greater world. We learn that magic in this series is largely elemental. And we learn this because Kel has an element box. You can see one behind me actually, right there. Uh, and this element box, has a has grooves in it and in each groove there is an element that magicians are able to control so we're told that it looks like a game board with a groove for each element in the first groove a lump of earth in the second a spoon's worth of water in the third in place of air sat a thimble of loose sand in the fourth a drop of oil highly flammable and in the fifth final groove a bit of bone so now we're kind of exposed to the way that magic works for people who are not Kel, we're starting to learn that Kel is an extraordinary kind of magician because he can not only control all of these elements, but he can also use blood magic. His, the blood that runs through his body makes him the kind of magician who can bend the rules of the world. So we meet Kel in this context, we meet Ned in this context, and basically we need to hold in our mind that the stone's throw is an important place. And with that, at the end of part one, Kel returns to his world. So what does that world look like? Well, that brings us to part two, Red Royal. And we actually start with a peripheral character. And I like to do this now and then because if we think of our identity as people, so much of what we understand about ourselves and so much of what is revealed about ourselves actually comes through the context of how other people see us. We are a product of the reflection in a way. And so I wrote this chapter, which is about two of the palace guards playing a game of Sanct. I love creating games for my worlds. No, I do not know all the rules. <laughs> I could not create this game for you, or it could, it would just take some time. Anyway, these two guards are playing a game of Sanct and they're talking and thinking about the royal family and uh, the prince and Kel, who is obviously in some way connected to that royal family. And I really love that because a lot of the book we spend with Kel, and he's a deeply introspective character, but it's good to see him from somebody else's perspective as well. So we're getting a sense of the royal family and the structure of that royal family in Red London. The other person that we meet in the opening chapter of part two is Holland, and Holland is another Antari magician. Now we're told basically that this is a dying breed, almost extinct, so it's very important that Holland is one of these as well. Also, we're told that Holland is not from Red London. Holland is from a different London. That's going to be important. And he's paying a visit to the prince. What seems to be a little bit of a clandestine visit, and we have a first pretty big hint that it was not supposed to happen because when the guards catch him leaving, he erases their memory. In the next chapter, we have Kel returning to Red London. And one of the first things that he draws to our attention is that while these Londons are different in spirit, uh, they're kind of built on the same foundation. For instance, in every one of these worlds, there is a version of the Thames River. But the Thames River is, goes by a different name and is changed based on the relationship to magic in that world. It's a source of power. So while in Grey London, the Thames River just looks 
bland and like water and a bit murky. In Kells London, in Red London, it literally glows crimson with magic. In White London, it has frosted over. So yet another kind of visual shorthand to help us keep the different worlds separate visually in our mind. So Kel returns to his world and we see the local reaction to him. While he was a stranger in Grey London and no one really noticed him, in his London he is basically worshipped. Or feared, the two go hand in hand, and he hates the attention. As Kel returns to the palace and is welcomed into the royal family, we see his relationship with the king and queen, but most importantly, we are introduced in person to Prince Rymeresh. And regardless of Kel's standing in the royal family and how he's treated, his relationship with Rai is one of the most important ones in the entire series, because even though they are not blood relation, even though Kel is technically an adopted son, who's really more of a, he sees himself as more of a possession than a prince, a, a weapon of the royal family, Rai sees him as a brother, treats him as a brother, and this is deeply, deeply important. I also forgot how young and naive Rai is in this book, especially in our first introduction to him as I was working on Threads of Power. I was like, oh wow, we have really done so much to you, Rai, I'm so sorry. But he's really lovely and young and whimsical here and he's talking about his birthday and he just has a lot of joy. Don't worry, we're gonna strip it all away. We're gonna make sure that he goes through it. Everyone in this book is gonna go through it. We learn something really important in his interaction with Rai, though, which is as the king and queen leave, Kel is left alone with Rai, and we discover that Kel has been doing something illegal. We first glimpsed it when he was in Grey London, in the tavern, in the stone's throw with Ned. Um, there was also a collector there who uh, wanted to purchase something off of Kel, and Kel traded the element box that I was talking about for a music box, a token from Grey London. And what we learn in this conversation between Kel and Rye is that that is heinously illegal. It is extremely forbidden to move any object between the worlds because at some point, Black London had the most magic and all of the worlds were connected and it spilled over and it could have hurt everyone. And this has happened centuries ago. The worlds were locked down, severed from each other. Now Kel, the Zentari are the only people who can travel between those worlds and it is explicitly forbidden to move anything uh, contraband, anything but those letters that he's carrying between the worlds. And yet Kel has been doing this. Kel has been doing it for long enough that Rai has told him he really needs to stop. And Kel has ignored him. And it obviously is tied up with his conflicting feelings about his relationship to the royal family and his desire to act out in some way. It's a self-destructive trait, but it's going to be deeply important to our plot that Kel tends to come into possession of things he should not have and we know this because not only does Rai tell him he has to stop, but Kelvin leaves the palace and enters a secret room that he keeps in the city that is essentially like Howell's bedroom from Howl's Moving Castle. It is a treasure trove of things he is not supposed to have. All of the mundane, we're not talking about weapons. We're not talking about articles of immense power. We are talking about things as simple as a music box, a chess piece. We learn a few really important things when Kel is in his little nook with all of his trinkets. One is that he's obviously still taking stuff. Two, the things that he's taking are not weapons. They don't need to be articles of extreme magic or power. They just delight him in some way. They're more symbolic of this need to rebel, even though he recognizes it as self-destructive. We also learn that he has no memory 
of his young childhood, that he was essentially brought to the palace when he was five years old, and he has a scar on the inside of his arm that is from a spell that erased his memory from the time before that. We learn that Kel is not even his name by birth. It's, num it's the letters KL, which were on the only article that was brought with him, which is a small knife. Lastly, and also very importantly, we learned that Antari magicians are not descended from each other. That magic in this world um, is either, you can believe it's arbitrary, or you can believe that it's based on some deeper meaning that we don't understand. A, a strong person does not beget a strong person, or a weak person beget a weak person in terms of magic. And we know this because the king and queen are both extremely powerful magicians, and the prince, Rai, Kel's adopted brother, has no magic to speak of, which is itself a plot point that we will get to. And Kel is, of course, an extraordinarily powerful magician, but he knows that his parents wouldn't have been because magic doesn't flow through the bloodline in that way. Anyway, he goes to sleep in his little, his little Howl's Moving Castle-esque bedroom nook full of trinkets, and we pivot to part three, Grey Thief. And fans of the series will know who we are going to meet now, because we are going to meet none other than Delilah Bard. Uh, in fact, the opening line of part three, uh, chapter one, is Lila Bard lived by a simple rule. If a thing was worth having, it was worth taking. Now, I usually try and create mantras for my characters. This is one of those mantras. And then the goal over the course of a book or a series is to get that character to care about something else enough that they break the mantra that I set for them. This is kind of though the initial mantra of Lila's life. If it's worth having, it's worth taking. Um, so we are introduced to Lila Bard as a 19 year old thief on the streets of Grey London, our London. She is dressed up as a man, uh, which is also important that she can pass for one. And she is pretty good at finding trouble. We also know that they're, the police are looking for a thief that definitely fits her description. She finishes a heist. She ends up with a, a pocket watch that she's quite excited about. And she retreats to her current place of residence, which I completely forgot about. I, in my mind, thought she had always been at the Stone's Throw Tavern. See where Kel was. We're going to come back to that. But no, it turns out I completely forgot that before she lived at the Stone's Throw Tavern, she resided on a a dilapidated ship in the bay known as the Sea King that is owned by a nefarious man named Powell. Lila returns to the ship and we learn that essentially Lila's great dream in this life is to be a pirate. And really the only difference between a pirate and a thief is that one has a boat. So she's like, I just gotta get a boat and then I'll be a pirate. She is living on this dilapidated ship in a dilapidated room and Powell comes in and is basically like, give me my cut from whatever you took today, and Lila doesn't have much of it. A fight ensues, uh, a struggle ensues, and Lila stabs him to death. This is very important because we need to set up pretty quickly that Lila is the kind of person who uh, does not flinch at the idea of killing someone else or harming someone else to keep herself safe. Uh, that's the, the way that she moves through the world. She does not have much choice. She does not have a family. Uh, but she no longer has a good place to stay either because after killing Pal, she sinks the ship. So now she is out of luck and she needs to find a place to stay. And that is how we return to the Stone's Throw. The Stone's Throw being the tavern that Kel visited when he was in London. Now we find Lila heading to the Stone's Throw and it turns out that she has a history with it. And she is asking for, uh, she's asking Baron, who is the proprietor, 
who we met very quickly in passing with Kel, she's asking him to stay there. Of course, she's not asking for a handout or a favor. She's just saying, I'll pay for it. And he basically has a very parental mean to him and he, uh, he lets her stay. She doesn't want to think that she's staying for any long length of time. She is convinced that she is just one good haul away from being able to stand on her own two feet. But we essentially put Lila Bard now in the stone's throw. This is going to be important. And with that, we head to part four, White Throne. And like I say, I know that these opening four parts are a large amount of introduction, but I really do believe that in order for you to care about these characters and care about this story so that you're invested in the ending, you need to have the underpinnings of, of why you should care, of what makes these people tick. Um, I love a story that plunges you into the action, but the downside of that is that if you don't care about the characters the story is happening to, you won't care about the story for very long. So. Part four, White Throne, has one of my favorite scenes that is back in Red London at the Royal Palace. Kel is trying to teach Rye magic, and it's not going very well. The magic comes so easily to Kel, and it comes not, almost not at all to Rye, and this is clearly a point of extreme duress for the young prince because power is still seen as power in this world. It can take different shapes. It's, it's a very literal kind of power, but to be a prince and not have magic, he obviously still has a lot of privilege, but he has a lot of fear about this as well, especially because his parents are both such strong magicians. The other part of this scene is that we are really leaning into the bromance between Kel and Rye. We are understanding that they just truly love each other but something happens when Rye fails to complete one of these spells when things go wrong and Kel has to step in and use blood magic in order to stop Rye's attempt from getting out of hand. And this is important in the long run because it's Kel causing himself a very small amount of pain to mitigate something that Rye has done. And Rye is extremely sensitive to the idea of Kel being in pain because of him, really of anyone being in pain because of him. Those who have read the series know that this is going to be a, a massive theme and a massive source of conflict and love between the two brothers, that one is always going to feel indebted to the other. But we have this wonderful moment between the brothers where they're like, Rai's like, let's just go out, let's go have some fun. And he's, he's wearing Kel down to this idea. We get to see Kel start to relax and then the king comes in and is essentially like, Kel, I need you to deliver a message to White London. And immediately Kel is sucked back into his job and the reminder that he is not truly a part of this family in the same way that Prince Rye is. And so with that, Kel heads to White London and we get our first introduction to White London. Now, remember I told you that the different Londons have different relationships to magic the world that magic forgot, the world where magic was worshipped. White London is the world that tried to contain and confine and enslave magic, basically. White London was the closest to kind of the source of this conflagration, the source of this magical plague. And so out of fear, it essentially cinched in all of its ropes. And people in White London began to bind magic to them using spell, using scar, using tattoo, using amulets, using anything that they could. They became starved for magic. Uh, so White London is 
down to its core, an extremely unsettling and unfriendly place. And Kel knows from the moment he crosses that threshold and steps into White London that he's in danger because he's one of the most powerful magicians in the world, but also this is a place where people will like cut you open to get at your magic. So he has a target on his back from the moment he steps into this world. He's very aware of it. Uh, this is a place of brutal power dynamics. It's also a place where the people seem to be clawing at this hope that the next ruler, whoever it is, will be the one that saves them. The current rulers on the throne are called the Dane twins, Athos and Astrid Dane. And I love them. I love them intensely because they're just brutal sadists. And the first, like when I write a novel, I always have a nickname that I call the book before I ever want to call it by its official title. I don't like to use its official title until it's a finished draft. And the original working title in my files for A Darker Shade of Magic was Pirates, Thieves, and Sadist Kings. These are the sadist kings that we are about to meet in this. And in this opening chapter, as Kel is heading towards the White Royal Palace, we meet up with Holland again. We have our first interaction between Kel and Holland, the two Antari magicians, two very different personalities. And we also learn something extremely important about Holland. So Holland is this Antari magician who is a servant of the king and queen, the Dane twins, which seems peculiar because he is the most powerful magician in this world, a world that worships and wants and hungers for power. And essentially what we discover is that when the last king was killed, they're always killed. There's always someone new trying to take the throne. When the last king was killed, three people rose up as potential candidates to take that throne. It was Athos Dane, Astrid Dane, my Dane twins, and Holland. And essentially working together, the Dane twins overpowered Holland. They caught him and they bound him using dark magic. So he is in a, a position of servitude unwillingly. This is very important. <laughs> so we meet up with Holland and Holland escorts Kel to the fortress, the Dane twins. Of course, it's not a palace. It's more of a castle. It's more of a fortress. It's a brutal place because this is a brutalist landscape. And we meet Astrid Dane, who is waiting for Kel. And Astrid Dane, I think you should think of her like Tilda Swinton or Kate Blanchett, but like just much, much meaner, obviously. And she's very scary. And I love her. And writing her and, and, and writing her and Athos was a lot of fun in a morbid way. Sometimes it's really fun to have both a villain and an antagonist. In this book, I would say that the Dane twins are our villains with a capital V. And Holland, based on what happens and because of the circumstances, is an antagonist. He is certainly not a good person. He is doing bad things, but we understand that he's much more complicated. But sometimes it's really just fun to have villains. And that's what our Dane twins are. In fact, in the next chapter, we meet Athos Dane. Athos Dane is currently torturing somebody just like pretty straight up torturing somebody who did not kneel deeply enough to him when he was out traveling the city. This is really Athos Dane's kink and we are just living in his world for a moment. But we also, Holland comes to fetch Athos because Kel has arrived at the palace and we get a moment between Athos and Holland. It's an often quoted moment um, where Holland takes in the sight of this person who's being tortured and 
Athos says to him, he suffered, but not like you. No one suffers as beautifully as you. This is a very dark relationship. Um, if you're reading the series for the first time, welcome to fan favorite Holland in all of his tortured glory. Uh, be sure to stick around. So chapter four, we have the dynamic between the Athos and Astrid Dane and Callan Holland. We have two rulers and two Antari. And what's most important about the scene is not that Kel is delivering a message. What's most important is seeing the way that these Antari magicians are treated differently by their respective rulers. So remember, even though Kel is not the true son of the king and queen in Red London, he's still taken care of. He's still treated kindly. Holland is the exact opposite. Holland is treated brutally. Holland is bound by a curse, essentially, that Athos has put on him, and Athos takes every possible opportunity to show that off by forcing Holland to do things against his will. It's really important because the idea behind it that makes Kel viscerally uncomfortable is that they could have so easily been born into each other's worlds. What would Kel's life have looked like if he had been born into White London instead of Red? And it's a really important reminder that like these are two magicians of equal power put in extremely different places by chance and circumstance. And and every time Kel feels the urge to judge Holland, which he does a lot, we are reminded that like Holland is trying to stay alive uh, and survive in his climate. So uh, Kel gets out of that palace as quickly as possible. Unfortunately, he has gotten a little drunk while there, which is a terrible idea. Uh, it is not a safe place, as we've established. This is a London that would eat him alive very happily just to get at the magic in his blood. And he has a revelation leaving the palace and walking through this city, slightly drunk at night, bad choices, Cal, that he needs to basically just become good. He needs to stop stealing shit. He needs to stop smuggling. He needs to just, like, be a good member of the Red Royal family. He's not going to do anything bad ever again. He's done. He's smuggling ways are done. And of course, the moment he comes to this revelation, somebody tries to get him to smuggle something for them. And he refuses at first, but they essentially prey on his good nature and they beg him and they basically say that before the walls close between the worlds, they had a relative, they were separated across these worlds. They're trying to get something back to him. Kel does not buy this. We should certainly not buy it. Our red flag should be going up all over the place. But by the end of the scene, Kel has come into possession of a letter he is meant to deliver to a place in Red London, and a piece of payment. A piece of payment he has been warned not to open because White London is such a hungry place. And Kel, so ready to be rid of White London, does not think enough about these two items that he has been given, which he is not supposed to take between worlds, and he leaves. And that is where we stop this first section of the reading. So, uh, a lot of introductions have been made. You have met Kel Maresh, our Antari magician from Red London. You have met Holland, our Antari magician from White London. You have met Lila Bard, who is a, a thief from Grey London. You have met royal families. You have met people who will become heroes and villains. And you have had the first hint of a locational cross with the Stone's Throw being a place that both Kel and Lila have visited. But so far, the paths in this story have not crossed. They are just about to, and you will have to tune in next week to get to that section with me. In the meantime, 
talk in the comments, leave questions, leave thoughts. I will be skimming through and answering what I can and chatting with you all. And I hope that you tune in next week.